I remember before that it seemed like life was getting pretty like pretty hard work <laughs> to just survive. Uh, after I became a monk, became an alms mendicant, where I gave up everything, then everybody wanted to give me everything. I've been offered Mercedes-Benz cars and all kinds of things. Like, yeah. <laughs> Nobody offered me those things when I wanted them. <laughs> That's the irony of it. <laughs> the Buddha it's interesting, just the, the emphasis on that the Buddha made and the experience of suffering. And this has always fascinated me because um, it's what I could relate to at the age of 30 where I had, uh, you know, I have no one to blame. I had no, my, my suffering wasn't because of uh, being abused or deprived or being poverty stricken or or having no opportunities or having horrible parents or uh, anything like that, or having bad health, or uh, generally, I'm by the 30, I'd had fairly good parents, very kind, very good, kindly parents, and opportunities, education, professional successes, and all the rest. So I had no one to blame, like I couldn't say it's my parents or it was because of bad health or that the world had plotted against me and had uh, managed to, you know, unfairly mis- mis- or mistreat me unfairly and that. It was I really nothing to blame except my own ignorance. I could see that. It was, I thought in the wrong way. I just didn't, I, my thought, the way I thought intended to to rea- react to life was uh, just a kind of stuck, like in, a, in, in habits that didn't seem to get me anywhere. And they just seemed to get deeper, uh, immature emotional habits, and that they didn't, I couldn't see any way out of it. And I thought, you mean you're stuck like this? And, you know, what if I live to a hundred years old and repeating these same stupid things till I'm a hundred years old? And it seemed pretty dismal if I just was going to go along just reinforcing the, the habits I'd acquired in the first 30 years of my life. So then the, the uh, practice, going to Thailand and becoming a monk. Uh, and people ask why I, I became uh, a Buddhist. And that is because it, it, this is what I had uh, faith in. Faith is something that is not a rational thing. It, you can't just kind of choose your religion and say, I'm going to believe in this. It's something, something reaches you in some way. And, and uh, so the Buddhist teaching uh, had, a, had a profound effect on me when I was, when I was 21 years old. And uh, so it had, had something, something in me resonated with that, with this particular uh, religion. And, the, and then this, the first noble truth of suffering was something I could, uh, I could uh, 
identify with because what you could see that that there's so much suffering in this life that it's a common it's a common denominator something we all have isn't it it's common to everybody from the top of the society to the bottom um, and so it's obviously ancient India as well as modern modern Britain uh, so suffering is a common human experience it's the ordinary thing that that we all have as human beings and so the first noble truth is a statement um, there is this suffering this dukkha and it's to be understood In my idealistic days, I thought life shouldn't be so. Life should be, you know, a happy affair. You should enjoy life, and and you should be fulfilled by it. And you should, uh, and things should be fair, and things should be right, and things should be all kinds of things that they that they that they're not. <laughs> and so you you can think it's because of the Americans. The American government, or it's the, yeah, or you know, it tended to take sides against the, the white middle class. I mean, even though I'm from the white middle class, I was very anti that. I blamed it on everything, or on the, on the um, Republican Party, because I was more inclined towards labor or Democrat. <laughs> identify with the with the underdog and the working class and all that much more than than with the with the more privileged uh, people. But even one can make cases against all kinds of you know and see see all the unfairnesses in, in the political system and social system and that. Something in me knew that that wasn't really the problem. The problem was how I thought about it. Something within me. So in meditation, then one is using this experience of suffering uh, as a. As it's the clue. It's the kind of key to the door because it. It take once you really understand suffering, then you realize non-suffering. So it's a, it's it's through that investigation and, and understanding of it that you actually realize the way of non-suffering. No, the, the the transcendent, the the deathless. Uh, when when I after I was invited to give this uh, talk this evening, then I chanted Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara the. the Doors to the deathless are open. Hmm. This is a this is a, a, a sta- in the Pali language a statement the Buddha made. The doors to the deathless are open. Well, that's a very profound, very kind of wonderful thing to announce. To me, it is anyway. The gates to the deathless are open for those who can hear this 
have faith, re- relax into that faith, or pay attention. And they say, ye sotavanta bhamunjantu satanga. Sotavanta is one who, who listens, who pays attention, who's awake. The soda, soda one time, soda is a, is a, a listener. So it's in this, and so the 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 ability to listen, isn't it? Is a is a uh, is kind of an open an open mindedness. We listen to life. We listen both inwardly and ex and and outwardly. Because uh, the the function of listening is uh, it's an inclusive mental experience. If one is, is really listening right now, if you're really listening, you're, you're in a poised state of awareness. It isn't thinking, is it? It's not thinking and analyzing and figuring everything out. Um, logically and reasonably and according to theories and ideas. It's the simple act of, of being in the moment, of being here now in the state of awareness, openness, receptivity. So a soda vanta is like one who's receptive and and open. And then by Munjantu Satang it's like it's like it's hard to translate into English does to to release into faith or the trust. To just relax and be in that state of attentiveness to life. <coughs> so the gates to the deathless and talk about Buddha used words like deathless. Words like selfless or nibbana, uh, niroda, viraga, um, all negations is is uh, a negation of something. So then, then in in language, when we negate something, then it it's like it's uh, it sounds it, if you take it logically and according to uh, thinking process alone, then it, it sounds like a kind of nihilism or an annihilation. Like Nibbana to a lot of people uh, sounds like a, a kind of nihilism or annihilationism. Or um, Niroda, cessation, sounds like, you know, see the world end and that's, reli- uh, re- that's uh, enlightenment, to see the end of the world. and. Uh, the ending of everything, meaning it sounds like, you know, one of these terrorists or, uh, you know, we might as well blow up everything, see it all end. And that's not what the Buddha meant by Niroda. <laughs> but it's, it's, when we let go of this desire for becoming and and controlling and manipulating out of out of our ignorance and fears, then we 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 see the the way things are. We realize the deathless. 
So the gates of the deathless are open, and a gate then is this a mindfulness. So actually, we're we're right at the gate right now to the deathless, not not just a uh, a poetic image or a philosophical statement. It's pointing at this directness of this moment now. All of us are poised on this this uh, at this gate. There's the death-bound conditions that we can endlessly kind of juggle around with our infatuations, our fixations, our aversions, our loves and hates, our uh, preferences and our desires and our fears and, and all that. So we're, we're bound into the death realm through uh, identifying with the body, with this human body. When you, when you operate from the assumption that I am this body, then you're not. You're then bound to a death. You're, you're, you're in the state of dying, the death-bound body. Or the five khandhas, the Buddha used this, this uh, teaching of examining the five khandhas or the five aggregates or the five groups, the five heaps of, of conditions, phenomena that we, that we identify with as a, per, as a personality. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> Did you register that cat for this retreat? <laughs> so in the beginning we we contemplate this this um like with vipassana meditation, you're, you're using the three characteristics of anicca, dukkanatta to examine phenomena, or the five khandhas, the body, the, the feelings, the vedana, sanya, perception, sankara, mental formations, vijnana, consciousness. So, and this is, this isn't like an intellectual <coughs> process. You're not, you're not uh, saying, Everything is impermanent as a as a kind of belief that you that you hold to, or that you project in impermanence onto everything. Like some people have done that. They say everything is impermanent. And then they say uh, the weather is impermanent, life is impermanent, this is impermanent, and they they kind of go through the whole uh, thing of of uh, thinking uh, about impermanence. But when we contemplate in Nietzsche, it's, it's not thinking, but observing impermanence. There's this sotavanta, this listener, this ability to pay attention. And so you're in a state of attentiveness, watching, feeling, knowing impermanence in regards to the body as, it, as you're experiencing it in the present. Or the feelings, the sensations, pleasure, pain, neutral sensation, or, or perception, memory, uh, name and form, uh, thoughts, uh, 
emotions and all the rest, and all the mental conditions. Can you find, or sensory experience, all that you see or hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel. In the present, you know, whatever it is, it's not, it doesn't have to be important, or just the way it is. So you're 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 looking you're 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 using the three characteristics of existence as a way of of beginning to pay attention to the way things are in terms of the created or the conditioned the born the originated. That story I tell about the disrobed monk that says he was a monk for six years and all he experienced was suffering. And uh, and he got so depressed. And he worked hard. He did all these meditation retreats, went six months in, in, uh, in Burma and did all kinds of really intense, uh, highly uh, kind of controlled meditation practices and ended up depressed. How's that possible? (coughs) Well, my opinion is he he probably was grasping the idea of suffering. You know, they say, everything's suffering, so you're sitting there, uh, thinking is suffering, feeling is suffering, having a body suffering, uh, this is suffering, everything's suffering. Happiness is suffering, sunshine is suffering, (laughs) beautiful flowers are suffering. (coughs) Everything's suffering, you'd be like, you know, really, it's really depressing to to perceive experience through the idea that that it's all suffering, isn't it? you're, You're projecting and you're taking, you're touching to the idea of suffering, then you project it out. And then the result would be depression. That's what depression is, where you think everything is miserable and you have no, you know, you lose all hope. You know, It's all suffering. The Buddha said everything's suffering. You might as well, you know, give up and just, you know, forget about suffering and maybe you might get a few moments of happiness. Because, you know, if you're going to attach to anything, attach to happiness and love, things like positive things. That'll give you, that'll make you feel good. But if you attach to, to the view that everything's suffering, then you'll get depressed. But if you examine things in terms of the way it is, not project the idea of suffering onto that's an attachment to the view of suffering, but really observe uh, or unsatisfactoriness. Dukkha can be translated as unsatisfactoriness. It's not depressing when you understand suffering, when you really understand it through uh, direct knowledge of it. In fact, it's liberating. It's uh, 
it's liberating to understand suffering, understand unsatisfactoriness. So that the the gates to the deathless thing. The Buddha was pointing to the deathless reality, to that which cannot be named, cannot be described and limited through language or perception. But, can, but is a realization when you, a, a spiritual realization. In in our meditation, then the this is this is the like the idea of realizing nibbana, and I want to encourage this uh, for all of you because there is a lot of of uh, you know in the Buddhist world there is a lot of misunderstanding around this, even among monks. Uh, in Thailand or other places where you you know the the you you know they 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 can say oh no, there's no enlightened people left in the world or there's and nobody can realize nibbana and uh, all you can do is count on a better rebirth that's one view but the Buddha didn't teach that. The Buddha taught, and this is the here and now Dhamma, when we chant the Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehipatikopanayiko, Bhajatang, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading onward, to be experienced individually by the wise. It's, it's not a matter of that Buddha's time was one thing and modern day Britain is somehow, it's so far removed from the, the time of the Buddha and we're so much more kind of confused and difficult and and materialistic and so forth that we can't possibly hope to get anywhere near to Nibbana. Because if you grasp that view, then that's how you're going to experience life. Whatever you grasp, that's how you interpret experience through your ignorance, through your biases, your perceptions that you that you've identified with, then you be, that's what you notice, that's what you experience. But to me, the, the and as Ajahn Chah taught, yeah, uh, is that this is, this is a, this reality is here and now to be realized. Not a matter of ancient or modern times. The suffering that people have in the time of the Buddha is the same. It's not any different than what we have. And he wasn't pointing to, to uh, you know, the English class system or the, or the Tories or the suffering we have from, from various uh, problems that we experience here in, in Europe and so forth. He's pointing to the common things of old age, sickness, death, grief, sorrow, despair, anguish, separation from the loved, having to be with the unloved, 
So that's that's the same stuff, isn't it? No doubt, people in India felt that they had that same. That's the same kind of suffering that that we have. So it's, the, the the first noble truth isn't about uh, in, you know a cultural quality about how people in India suffered 2,500 years ago as if it was any different than how I suffer here. The same. So the the first noble truth isn't a matter of of uh, well the age is past, but it's beginning to look at uh, the suffering that we have. This like attachment to the body. You know, here I'm getting old, and you notice we're in a, in a society that that does not much use for old people. Locks them up and puts them in nursing homes, and they're they're fated to watch television till they die. You just set them in front of a TV set, and uh, they sit there and slobber on themselves <laughs> until they're dead. So the idea of getting old in the, you know, if I'm identified with, with the age of my body, I'm getting old, you know. Is that what's going to happen to me? You know, I've, the suffering of worrying about, you know, well, will they, that happen to me? You put me in some nursing home and I'll... <laughs> or the <laughs> sickness and worries about cancer and AIDS and and all the modern uh, kind of illnesses. Uh, uh, you know, not only do and tuberculosis is coming back and more dreadful strains of malaria are surfacing and. That sounds hopeless, you know. Possibility of hepatitis and and uh, ME and MS and whatever. So that there's a suffering of, you know, of of just this this um, aging process, the death, the unknown. What hasn't happened yet? What happens? What is death? I hope I do. You hear people say, "I just want to die in a like." go out nicely. I don't want to have one of these long, lingering, painful, excruciating death process. Or separation from the love. That's, that's a very common... I mean, that's, that's part of life, isn't it? Separation. Having to separate from what we like and those we love. Or having... To, we have a, this reflection, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise will become separated from me. This is about human experience that we all have as all human beings. Having to be with what we don't like, don't want. That kind of suffering. So, so this is to be understood. Now notice in in your life when when you experience grief, when you, the grief is the loss of something, you, somebody you love or something you like, separation. So there's a lot of grief in the human lifetime. There's a lot of 
it's just natural to this state of our human condition. So, so because from you know, telling some uh, venerable Ajilo and and venerable Tanasanti today about when I was eight years old, my cat died. Grief. of a loss of a beloved pet. You know, you can say, well, it's, you know, child, cat, nothing much. But but grief is like that, isn't it? It's, it's, it's that losing, loss. And you experience it in all kinds of ways throughout a lifetime, in some seem seemingly insignificant and minor ways. And then it, it culminates, like parents dying, or teachers, or husband, wife, children, your closest friend, your most beloved ones, die. And this is, this is a part of human experience. So grief is uh, something to understand. Now I used to think that if you're really mindful, you won't feel any grief, or you know, you, you'll... Uh, you, you won't feel things. I, I, when I first started meditation, I just didn't want to feel because I felt, you know, so vulnerable and sensitive that I thought if I get really the samadhi, get that samadhi, I can just shut down everything. You know, my mother dies and I say, oh, things are permanent. <laughs> Don't feel anything about it. Or, or just... Uh, <coughs> But that's not how it is. It's, uh, I realized after a while, and under the, the guiding influence of somebody like Lung Po Cha, was that he was pointing to understanding suffering rather than just trying to dismiss it or ignore it or shut it out. And this is very important in, in our lives, the experiences we have of, of loss or having to be with the, what we don't like. We all have to put up with things in the family life or in the in our professional life or in the society we're living in and the in the group of the 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 neighbors or the or the way the society is there's a lot we don't like and don't want in 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 our human experience so in investigating something i i would really watch this this uh, sense of loss what is it like? And I'd listen, I'd kind of, in the Sotawanta style, just listen, like inwardly. When, when some, some, something, like when a monk disrobes, especially when, when you've, when you, there's a strong kind of bond that takes place in monastic life. So when, when somebody, especially you've been sharing your life in the monastic form for a long time, then they disrobe. You feel this grief. At least I do. Speaking for myself. And there, or, or when my parents died, or when Lumpa Cha died. And so going to that grief, you go like in, in you feel it in your in your, you feel it in your guts, in your body, in your heart. And this, this is a, this part here. You can really 
begin to to notice that feeling of loss, separation from the love, as experience. And so you, it's not just theory. It's not an, an abstract intellectual experience, uh, ideal, but it's the real thing. It's like this. And so you're, you're opening to that, that feeling of grief. Now it's hard to explain it because it, this is where you need to really, um, you know, use this sense, of this this mindfulness, this uh, willingness to uh, notice what you're actually feeling, the way it is, the way it is. So how do you describe the the feeling of grief? Like like to me, it's like a a big hole in you, or a gap, or something. When you, when you, when you think of somebody that's alive, you know you can. Even though you may not see them, this idea of them being alive somehow that, that that uh, makes you feel all right because we understand what it is to be alive. They're alive, even though you may may not have seen them for. 20 or 30 years. But then when you hear they're dead, death is, is a word, isn't it, that we, we have, but we don't, we, we've not died. We haven't died, so we don't know what it is. It's like, it's frightening. It's the unknown. And we're all, we know we'll all die. So we... We, we know that that's in a part of our experience, the physical death. But we can dismiss it or ignore it or refuse to, to contemplate what that, how that affects us. The idea that somebody we loved, somebody we're very close to, dies. And it feels like this. So you're, you're, this is what a reflective mind, you're actually observing. And go right into your body, into like the heart or into the the uh, abdomen, the solar plexus, where you begin to really notice the the feeling of fear or or desire or grief or despair or or uh, anger, resentment. And we're doing it with an attitude of of uh, interest, taking an interest to examine, to really feel this, to to be, let it be what it is, not in order to get rid of it. If you're if you're trying to uh, trying to do this in order to get rid of the suffering, that that won't work. It has to. You have to develop these these kind of virtues of patience and willing to suffer, kind of embracing the unsatisfactoriness, the grief, the, the sorrow, the despair, and a willingly uh, 
even joyfully accepting pain, disease, old age, <coughs> loss, having to be with what we don't like, not getting what we want, uh, criticism, blame, failure, uh, all the, the kind of miserable states of human, uh, experiences of human, uh, of our humanity, we're now embracing that. Like an embrace, this word is quite meaningful because it's like when you embrace somebody, you're kind of accepting all of them, isn't it? You're not saying, I've only embraced this part of you. <laughs> but I don't embrace that part. This embrace is like you're taking the whole lot on, the good and the bad. And it's, and it's like a, a, a joyful experience. Embrace usually, embrace com- conveys to me a kind of a joyful acceptance of somebody. Well, and embracing the suffering, embracing the experience in the present is, is like, r- rather than just kind of say, I've got to really study all this stuff in order to get, realize the way of non-suffering and in trying to kind of, kind of furtively kind of practice meditation in order to, to uh, kind of get liberated someday. You're, you're going into wholehearted and you're going to fully, completely. Then this Bamun Jantu Satang is with this faith and this trust. Because you're your refuge is in the truth, in what is ulti- which is the deathless, ultimate reality. There's nothing to fear. So fear can be embraced. Or the, the emotional habit of being frightened then can be embraced because there's nothing to fear. But we still have fearful reactions, emotional habits. We still experience, uh, we can still be frightened, feel the ex- we can still have that, the emotion of fear. But now we're, we're instead of just trying to run away from it, deny it, we're willing to experience it, to embrace it, to understand it. Gates to the deathless are open, and this is quite a remarkable statement. And in the English language, the deathless is a strange. I mean, people, it's it's a way of thinking that we're not used to deathless. Like if you talk about immortality, immortality means deathless. But, but we, we think of immortality like having a human body forever, or having living in some state of, some conditioned state forever and ever. Or, or the experience of infinity, uh, or eternity, or the, the, where, where, say, there's no limit anymore, there's no boundary. 
we always try to describe that in terms of some limit or to, uh, some kind of conditioned way of thinking uh, in, in terms of experience only with the condi- with the with the conditions of of that we have that are affect us affecting us but in in with mindfulness it is an intuition uh, the function of intuition which is an embracing ability isn't it like this thinking in that and and logic and reason criticizing is a separative thing this is better than this this is big this is small this is a woman this is a man it's all discriminative and 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 pointing to the limitations of things but in terms of experience they uh, time is is always a limitation isn't it? when we when we believe in the perception of time as reality is and so when we're trying to figure it out with our thinking mind then we then we we uh, we get stuck in this kind of dualistic it's either you know in terms of ex- uh, a kind of linear dualism is is how we we experience life but when we're using intuition or awareness mindfulness then this is a this is this embraces all the the whole it's holistic in other words like right now we can i can discriminate and say um this is this person we can look at all the people and know their names like I did last night saying who is this person and 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 talk about all the limitations we're under the eight precepts and so forth uh, the conditions that we're going to abide by the conventions of this retreat uh, and so we 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 can understand all that quite easily because we're we're, we're educated and we're condition to to be a, to uh, experience life through the discriminative mind through thought through memory through perception and then meditation is based on intuition so it's an intuit an intuitive moment is here and now it's not logical and it includes everything so in this state of intuitive awareness then your mind is in a state of open uh, embracing of this moment and we can be aware of of uh, we can begin to notice what how i'm feeling in this moment what the na- what the kind of mental state i'm in you know what kind of emotional state am i in or what what my body what does it feel like right now and it's beginning to and i'm using thought now to to notice things rather than to to uh, figure it out 
I'm not trying to figure out how my body feels anything at this moment. I'm just beginning to notice it feels like this. the pain or the tension. I notice like there's a uh, sitting like this for this long a time, there's a, a kind of, uh, not pain, but a kind of aching sensation in this knee. Which is, when I notice it, it's there, but when, when I don't notice it, it's probably still there, but I'm not it isn't strong enough to dominate my experience at this moment. Or I can go just to uh, contemplate, how do, I, how do I feel right now? What is my kind of mental state, emotional state? I, I don't know how to describe my emotional state right now, but I can certainly be aware of it. It's like this. Or I can uh, be aware of, of the breath. The breath is here and now. Or the sound of silence. Or the sound of silence. I, this, the, the background sound, this primordial ringing sound. When your mind is in that state of opened attention, then it begins to notice this kind of... Uh, high pitch ringing sound that isn't a, a sound like a, a noise that comes it's, a, it's a like space it seems infinite it has no boundary so just noticing the way it is and then then in, in the, the practice of cultivating uh, this way, then we, we begin to they use the four the four postures, the, the movement of life, mm-hmm. sitting to standing to walking to lying down, going from here to there, to to the whole natural experience of eating food and and going to bed and putting on your clothes, taking your clothes off, taking a bath. Everything is included in the in this awareness. Because if it's what is happening now, it's like this. So we're 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 paying attention. We're 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 looking at life as as experience now, rather than planning our next move in the future, or spending our time regretting about regretting things of the past. So you're actually poised on this door to the deathless. And we can move into that deathless reality the more we we trust in it. Or we can just get stuck in the deathbound condition, completely trying to rearrange everything all the time, control and and just fuss around with with condition phenomena until you drop dead. Waste of a lifetime, isn't it? So notice that this this uh, awareness brings us into this this threshold position of 
where we can include both the conditioned and the unconditioned, the death-bound and the deathless. Uh, so that we're, we're in that, that poised state of where we, we, we can observe the relationship. We're not trying to ignore or put down the conditioned world. We're not making categorical judgments against the condition where it's all impermanent and suffering and non-self and just depressing and then you're going to die anyway and what's the point of life? It's not like a a sour grapes uh, kind of approach to the conditioned realm, but it's it's, it's being able to to know the condition and the unconditioned. It's a direct knowing. Knowing the difference. Like panya or wisdom is in the Pali language, panya means to know the condition and the unconditioned. To have the it's a discriminative panya always means some kind of discriminative ability, but it's discriminative not to uh, you know uh, liking or disliking, but knowing the conditions like this, the unconditions like this. So when the world criticizes Buddhism and says it's a it's a uh, escapist religion, we <laughs> feel you know how people can in- can interpret the superficial, how the the kind of images or the when you look at the Buddha images and that you can see, you know, somebody sitting there probably uh, they're just not participating in life. Don't care about the world. Uh, they're just saying goodbye, world. I don't care about you anymore. I'm going for it. <laughs> I'm going for a final nibbana. Goodbye, tough luck. <laughs> or is it? Is it a really a really? Uh, opening to the experience of life. For me, it, that's what it is. It, the Buddhist practice has forced me into accepting life, into feeling life, into understanding life in all its facets, in its painfulness, in its pleasure, in, in everything, in its boringness, in its stupidity, in its dreariness, in its, in its peak moments and all that because life is like that the flow of life is as the, you know there's endless kind of changing things I mean, sometimes it's pretty dreary and boring and and uh, things can be quite miserable in uh, as conditioned experience but the ability to embrace even uh, even the, the misery of the moment 
because it's a part of human experience. It's not because there's something wrong, but because it's a misery is also part of our human experience. So when misery, when there's miserable things happening, then that's also to be fully accepted and felt. And this full acceptance and feeling isn't attachment. It's not coming through attachment and 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 through ignorance, but through wisdom and understanding. And there's a sense of trust. It's bamun jantu sadang. You can like jumping into the abyss or the or the God, these these images that the kind of horrific images of of spiritual uh, realization jumping into the abyss. That's pretty frightening when you think of it in terms of a self. You jump into some black hole, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you just you'd be a fool. You know, you jump into this thing and you don't know where you're going to land. But in, in, but in, but maybe be maybe that's a bit extreme because I don't experience as jumping into the abyss, but it's it's a trusting, putting my allowing myself to to really uh, open to suffering and to not run and hide from it or blame or or get caught in in uh, avoidance or denial of it. So what I've said tonight is for a reflective teaching, not a dogmatic one. Uh, I don't expect you to believe this, but the, impo- the emphasis is encouraging to to really open yourself up, to to really know yourself, trust yourself, to be able to to really. Uh, use this experience here, the way you are, what happens to you during this time, and it doesn't matter what happens, if you have just terrible, miserable states, that's fine, embrace it. I came to this retreat hoping to get some bliss. Um, I want my money back. And you think, Ajahn Sumedha is just trying to convince us that it's all wonderful no matter how horrible it is. <laughs> That's not it, isn't it? I'm not trying to convince you of anything, but encouraging an attitude which uh, they lead to. Leads to what? You find out. You have an opportunity in the next two weeks to to experiment. So after this for your reflection.